0: most of us begin our lives as parents filled with love. Certainly that first moment of greeting your child is one of the most miraculous moments that it's possible to know in this life. Those moments when we first met our child, we Have the possibility of experiencing a love which is very rare. A love which is pure and deep and in that moment very unconditional. We also, I feel begin our lives as parents frequently filled with ideals. Ideals and love are free are companions. Most times in our lives are companions. And there is nothing I feel amiss or strange in that match. When we love someone deeply, we want to protect them from harm. We want to care for them, to nurture them. When we love someone deeply, we want them to be safe. We want them to be filled with happiness. In many ways, ideals for us are a way of seeking for avenues or forms that can actually embody or express the love that we feel. In this life that we live, we can have so many ideals. Ideals about ourselves as parents, the kind of life we would like our children to experience, Sometimes we have ideals about our children, the kind of people that we would wish them to be. I personally don't feel that these ideals are in themselves, are intrinsically in any way negative or destructive or saturated with demands or expectations. Ideals are a very big part of meditation. If we look at the way and what motivates us in a path of meditation, Think of what, when we do loving kindness practice, we wish for all beings to be free from suffering. We wish for all beings to be filled with peace, to be happy, to be at ease in the world. It's an expression of our heartfelt wishing for what might be. Logically, rationally, it doesn't make any sense. And yet that very expression evokes something within our own hearts, evokes a sense of dedication about what may be possible. In any spiritual path, any path of deepening, vision is something that is very fundamental. It's very essential. Apart from vision, what else leads us to reach for greatness of heart or spirit? What else leads us other than vision, to try and bring about change in ourselves, to try and bring about change in our world. Somewhere we sense that that is possible. Vision, or a sense of longing, is an intrinsic facet of every spiritual path. We are moving towards, reaching towards, what is possible for us. And in very real ways, That sense of longing for what is possible is the mother of faith and effort. It is the mother mother of commitment. Without it, without that sense of vision or sense of possibility, we wouldn't be inspired to reach for anything and most likely very little would change. When we look at a spiritual path, and a spiritual path is something bigger than just what kind of meditation we do or what, how much we practice. But if we look at a spiritual path as seeking for a way to understand what is true, seeking for a means to live a noble and sacred life, if we look at a spiritual path as something which is really in the service, of wisdom and compassion, then I think it is very clear to us that a spiritual path must embrace every area of our lives, our inner life, but equally a spiritual path needs to embrace our life at play, our life at work, our life in relationship, and our life as parents. There's a story of a rather infamous meditation teacher who was uh, a spiritual teacher who was filled with opinions about everything. And one day that teacher met a hermit who was actually pretty silent and didn't have much to say. And the master, the spiritual master said, I have no tolerance for those who use their children as an excuse for not practicing. And the hermit said, I have no tolerance for those who use their practice as an excuse for not parenting. I find myself that I have less and less patience with this word integration. You know, this becomes a very charged word, certainly in this tradition. You know, we have to learn to integrate. When we speak about integration, it is so often carrying this implication that when we sit in meditation or when we do walking meditation, we're doing the real work. We're seriously involved in a spiritual practice and a spiritual path. And that at some point, we have to leave that very real work and return to the world. Return to the real world, it's sometimes called. And in doing, returning to the real world, we must somehow try to maintain what we did on the cushion. We have to try and make it last a very frustrating task. We speak about integrating our practice into work and relationship and families, but the moment that we begin to think in this way, we are giving a solidity to a division. We are already saying there's a separation, that that's a spiritual path over there, and this one is not really a spiritual path, but we'll try and make it one. Already we're expressing an attitude in which there is a hierarchy, in which we are perceiving one as being superior and better, more important than the other. To me, this division that is made is one of the greatest errors, one of the greatest tragedies of the spiritual life. And as long as we continue to make that division, I think that we sentence ourselves to a tension which is quite destructive. Some people even come to believe that if I practiced more, if I had more time on retreat, if I had more time in meditation, that somehow this time is going to magically heal my life. Despite the stories of countless people who've been caught in the same dilemma and found more time on retreats, more time in meditation, and discovered actually that it's not a magical solution. Because what is it that heals our life? It's not time, it's wisdom. Time has very little to do with healing. Wisdom has a great deal to do with healing. (coughs) There is no doubt that there is immeasurable value in taking the time to be still, knowing how to pause and stop in our lives. But what is it that actually makes that time valuable? Many of you have been on retreats. What happens on a cushion? What is that journey we make on a cushion? Essentially, when we sit on a cushion, we find that we have one moment at a time. One moment at a time that invites us to see clearly, to learn how to let go, to learn how to befriend the moment, to learn the the gift of allowing What happens on a cushion is we have one moment at a time that invites us to forsake the path of harm, to forsake the path of judgment, of greed, of anger, of hatred. We have one moment at a time on a cushion that invites us to travel new pathways in our lives, the pathways of forgiveness, of acceptance, of compassion. On a cushion we have one moment at a time that invites us to distinguish between what is a practice of confusion and what is a practice of wisdom. I hardly think that this invitation is geographical. It is not confined to a particular place or time. The nature of our lives is that one moment follows another moment offering us an invitation that is no different than the invitation that is offered to us on a cushion. Perhaps we are actually not that far away from a spiritual practice. You know there's that, that kind of timeless story of, of the fish swimming in the ocean and it swims all over the ocean asking all of the other fish, you know, can you tell me the way to find the ocean? you know, where is the real ocean? I need to find the ocean. Can you give me directions? And all of the other fish would say to this fish, but this is the ocean. And the fish would say, no, this is just water. How far away are we from a spiritual practice? There's a Christian writer writing, uh, said in, in, in her writing, when she was an older woman, she said, I hope that when I reflect back on my life as a parent, that I will be able to say to myself that I was really there. That I was really there. Spiritual practice is actually concerned with really being there. On our cushion, in our lives, we encounter again and again that very simple invitation, be present, be awake, wholeheartedly, fully, mindfully. That when we can do this, then we can open to each moment as our teacher. And part of being there, part of being awake is also being able to forgive ourselves in those moments that we flounder and to have the willingness to begin again. Happiness is a big part of meditation practice. And usually we think of happiness as being the result of what happens from our practice. But it is true to say that happiness is actually a prerequisite to deepening a meditation practice. Not the happiness of being high or elated or excited, but the happiness of a contented heart that is expressed in a willingness to welcome each moment. It's a very rare person who begins a meditative practice feeling that they're perfectly happy, totally satisfied, totally delighted with all things as they are, If they felt this way, they might say, I wouldn't even begin to meditate. But there is a different quality of happiness, which is about openness and the contentment with what is. We see, all of you who have sat before know very well that when we sit on a cushion, we bring all of our demons with us. We bring our demons of struggle and battle, we bring our demons of anger and aversion. We bring the demons sometimes of our histories and our cravings. We also learn that as long as we struggle or reject our demons, they follow us. They follow us everywhere. We are married to them. There is little happiness to be found when we can't be at ease with what is. Instead, we always think, you know, there's going to be a better moment to be awake there's going to come a moment later to be mindful and present after my demons have disappeared, after I've got rid of them or transcended them, then I'm going to find happiness. I think in meditation practice we actually discover that this tension is not necessary. One of the greatest arts of meditation is learning how to welcome what is without prejudice. Our greed our anger, our resistance, we say welcome with a mindful alertness. Our rages, our jealousies, our pettiness, we say welcome with a mindful alertness. Tension disappears because we are no longer rejecting. There's that wonderful story from, from the Buddha's life when the Buddha sat under the tree on the eve of his enlightenment and it said that Mara came to assault him with all of the Buddha's demons of doubt, of lust, of greed. The Buddha didn't say, you know, I'm going home until you disappear. He didn't reject. There was an aversion. The response was simply to say, I know you. I know you. I greet you. I know you. I greet you and of course in the Buddhist story, the arrows of Mara turned into flowers. Happiness is not actually dependent on getting rid of anything. It has much to do with our willingness to welcome and open. No one ever begins as a meditator perfectly skilled in the art of meditation. No one is ever born a perfect parent. Contentment is found in learning to welcome not only our allies but our adversaries. Then we can deepen in meditation. This same spirit actually allows us to deepen as parents. Our willingness to welcome not only our allies but our adversaries. Until we are willing to do this, I think we are always in a position of feeling that we must postpone wisdom or postpone happiness or to follow perhaps, you know, that more traditional Asian path, you know, where you have these phases in your life, you know, where first you're a child yourself, then you grow up, you're a student, you marry, you have children, and then after all that is done with. You leave home and have a spiritual life. We need to be careful, I think, in our culture of not adopting that kind of dualistic thinking. Our experience as parents is to experience a life that is filled with contrasts. There are moments of profound intimacy and love and closeness. There can be equally moments of great disconnection and alienation. Sometimes we experience equal measures of love and anger. There are times of deep connectedness that we would wish would last forever. And there are moments of struggle and resistance and despair and feelings of failure that we are convinced are going to last forever. The texture I think of our life as parents is one that is incredibly unpredictable. How many times you have a moment of serenity followed so quickly by a moment of incredible uproar. You have a moment of peace and you think, oh, now I can relax. The next moment there's an emergency, a crisis that you're in the midst of. Sometimes your life feels very ordered Sometimes it's incredibly chaotic. Sometimes we feel ourselves as parents to be really wise and guiding from a place of wisdom within ourselves. The next moment we can experience ourselves as being so incredibly petty, you know, that we wonder where it ever comes from and whatever happened to the wisdom I think sometimes prior to being parents, we can view this whole family scene (laughs) as being a very, you know, through very sentimental glasses. And the reality of our lives is that it uproots sentimentality. You know, it uproots sentimentality. We learn, all of us, very immediately about unpredictability and about impermanence. Have you seen that today in yourself, in your children? That sweet, delightful child that woke up smiling, a moment later is kicking you in the shins? The moods can shift so quickly. You can go from a meditation, you know, determined that you've turned over a new leaf, you know? Never again will you be reactive until your kid hits you with a baseball, you know, and you find yourself immediately in the same patterns of tension. The baby of yesterday. I was watching a child in a little scooter outside. It's tiny. It was my daughter's. My daughter is now this raging teenager, you know, in the midst of hormone storms. I wonder, whatever happened to that child? They used to ride around on that little scooter. We learn a lot through these transitions. We learn about unpredictability. We learn about not clinging. We learn about not holding onto what has already gone by. We learn the wisdom of needing to be present just with what is. And we also learn that if we don't understand these lessons, we suffer enormously. There's a deep wisdom involved in learning to befriend and make allies of the contrasts in our experience to see that within these changes, we are learning about life's truths. In many ways, those moment-to-moment changes are a microcosm, a microcosmic view of some of the deepest lessons in our lives. How do we learn? We have to be there. We have to be present. Avoidance and aversion and struggle needs a friend. And that friend is actually mindfulness. When we are not present and not mindful in the midst of our difficulty and challenge and loss, then we become a victim. And there is nothing that is more undermining of our faith and confidence in ourselves than to feel that things always happen to me, that things always happen to me, that I'm assaulted or overwhelmed, In that place, we lose our confidence and trust in ourselves. Sometimes, in the Tibetan tradition, they they describe equanimity as being equally near to all things, equally near to all things, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the difficult and the delightful, the challenging and the peaceful. To be equally near to all things without prejudice, confidence is respo- restored. I think sometimes we feel, you know, well, mindfulness is just too simplistic a view. You know, there's a lot more complicated issues here. You know, it's just too simplistic to say that mindfulness is going to ease our way in this life. Sometimes we believe, you know, that we haven't yet quite found the right strategy or the right technique, or the right formula to help us deal with struggle, or to help us deal with aversion, or to help us deal with the resistance. Sometimes we feel like we just haven't read enough books, you know, so we'll go to the bookstore. Well, there's a million books on how to be the perfect parent, you know, and every expert has a few words to say to us. And it's not to say that there's not not things that we can learn from this body of information. There is much that we can learn, but the bottom line is that we also need to know how to be guided by our own wisdom because no situation is ever the same as another. We need to know how to be in touch with our own intuition, our own wisdom. Otherwise, all of these strategies actually just become baggage in our lives all of the strategies and the advice and the guidance can become baggage which actually make us feel more of a failure you know i'm obviously just not doing this technique right you know i haven't got the right right formula yet what allows us to be guided by our own wisdom is being present Mindfulness is something that is powerful and transforming. And its aim, you know, mindfulness is not about going slowly. Everyone who's ever done retreats knows you can be as mindless going slowly as going quickly. Mindfulness is about being awake. And mindfulness is really concerned with communion, with oneness, with being close to the moment. That is the concern and the service of mindfulness, to know how to cultivate communion, to know how to turn towards the difficult rather than away from, then mindfulness heals us because it frees us of division. There isn't actually anything very complicated about mindfulness. Sometimes what is complicated is remembering to be mindful. This is the hardest part is remembering to be awake, remembering to be present. It's so easy to forget, to be mindful. It is so easy to get lost in our thoughts about the future, our anxieties about the future, our memories of the past. And I think especially in this group, what is so easy for us is to get lost in busyness. The reality of probably all of our lives, unless you're very rare, is that there is a bottomless well of unanswered needs, of things that need to be responded to, of things that need to be completed. But I think what is really important to remember is that busyness is a state of mind and not a description of reality. Busyness is truly a state of mind and not a description of reality. Busyness and anxiety are very close. Anxiety and busyness, the overloaded mind, always makes us want to jump into the next moment, to be ready for the next moment, to jump into the next thing that needs doing, even though we haven't fully completed where we are. And yet, does any of that anxiety, any of that thinking actually help us in our lives? You know, Buddha was once asked to describe the world. He said, You know, come up with a description of the world. And Buddha Dasa said, Lost in thought. Lost in thought. Isn't that easy for us just to be lost in thought, thinking about what we need to do? thinking about what we have yet to do, thinking about what is yet to come, and with that, becoming more and more anxious. And what happens? We, learn, we neglect where we are. We neglect where we are. This moment that we're in right now is the next moment's personal history. It's the history for that next moment. If we live in this moment in a preoccupied, anxious, obsessive way, we are creating a state of mind that we carry into the next moment we meet. If we live in this moment with a willingness to be simple, to let go, to be present, this is also what we carry into the next moment. To read you a a Buddhist story. There was once a couple of acrobats The teacher was a poor widower, and the student was a small girl named Maida. The two of them performed in the streets to earn enough to eat. They used a tall bamboo pole, which the teacher balanced on the top of his head while the little girl slowly climbed to the top. There she remained balanced while the teacher continued to walk along the ground. Both of them had to devote all of their attention to maintain perfect balance and to prevent an accident. One day, the teacher instructed the girl, Listen, Maida, I'll watch you and you watch me to prevent an accident from occurring. Then we'll be sure to earn enough to eat. But the little girl was wise and answered, Dear Master, I think it would be better for each of us to watch ourselves. To look after oneself means to look after both of us. That way, I can be sure we will avoid any accident and we'll earn enough to eat. I think sometimes that kind of position is misunderstood. Sometimes I think we feel selfish about caring for ourselves. Or perhaps we feel it's of less priority than caring for another. But isn't it true that when we don't care for ourselves... We also don't know how to care for another very well. Mindfulness is not something that is magical. Intention is actually the life of mindfulness. All of you who have ever done a retreat before know and probably you've experienced it today. There's a lot of different journeys you can make while you're sitting on a meditation cushion. You know, you can look like the perfect yogi in a perfect posture. You look like a Buddha statue. Inwardly, you can be planning a shopping list, planning a dinner party, going shopping. You know, you can be remembering your childhood memories. You can be replaying tapes that you've played a thousand times before, and all the time you look like a perfect yogi. We also know that there's another journey we can make when we sit on a meditation cushion, that we can really dedicate ourselves to being awake, to listening inwardly, to learning how to let things be, to learning how to open, and then that journey on a cushion is liberating. The power is not in the cushion, the power lies in our intention. This is equally true in our lives. What difference would it make when you go to play with your children, that that playtime is not a time where you're divided, thinking about when is this going to be over so that I can go and do something else. But that playtime, and and that it's not a rehearsal for another moment, but that playtime is approached wholeheartedly. That when we are there, we are fully there. There is nothing to do in that moment but to play, to listen well, to speak well, to act with care. What difference would it make if we approached washing our dishes in the same spirit that we approached coming to sit, that this is not just a mundane activity that means nothing, but that we go with a spirit of reverence, a spirit of taking care of that moment? What difference would it make to bring a clearer sense of intention to our lives, to know when we are lost, And to know how to return, to know really how simple it is to return, a question of remembering. Returning is just the next step away. It's just the next breath away. Returning is made incredibly difficult by being judgmental. Returning is made very simple by being accepting and forgiving, forgiving. really, I would really suggest here in these days together that we really might look at what difference clear intention actually makes. The knowing where we are, knowing why we are there, knowing what it means to be fully present. Perhaps we understand in that that we don't have to wait for a perfect moment to be awake, but that the moment that we're in is the most perfect moment be awake. If we could take a couple of minutes just to sit quietly together and then it's time for a break. May all beings be at peace within themselves. May all beings live in peace with one another. May all beings live in peace. (laughs)